0: The Where Our Minds Wander podcast may contain sensitive content. Listener discretion is advised. Greetings fellow wanderers to the places our minds wander.
1: The house at the end of the dirt road. Where disembodied voices whisper and strange sounds make the living shiver.
0: Where shadows lurk at the edge of the woods, just outside your back door. And mysterious lights speed beyond reason across the clear night sky.
1: Odd events throughout time that lead you down the rabbit hole. I'm Wes. And I'm Beth.
0: And this is Where Our Minds Wander. Hello and welcome to Our Minds Wander, all you fellow wanders. Thank you for joining us.
1: Hello, everyone.
0: For tonight's episode, Beth and I thought we'd talk about a haunting and a mystery.
1: Yeah, so I picked up a copy of Hans Holzer's Ghosts, which is a massive book documenting hundreds of paranormal investigations that he did in the 1950s and 60s. And it's a pretty fascinating read, although it's, it's a heavy read. Like, the print is tiny, and <laughs> there are hundreds of cases in this book. But it reminded me of why you and I started this podcast in the first place, because we're both fascinated by the idea of haunted places.
0: Yeah, that's true. And for those of you who don't know Hans Holzer... He was one of the original paranormal investigators in this country, and he traveled all over the world to look into claims of haunted homes.
1: So the place that I'm going to talk about isn't actually in this book, but it is close to home for us. And I have to admit, it has always looked haunted to me every time we've driven past it.
0: Yeah, it's only about 45 minutes away, and it's pretty cool looking.
1: So, the lovely, picturesque town of Saranac Lake in the Adirondacks of New York has been a vacation spot for centuries. Nestled in the mountains, the town sits on the banks of pristine lake flower. In the center of town, towering above it all, is the six-story red brick Hotel Saranac. Built in 1927, the hotel has stood the test of time, and so have some of its inhabitants. It has been voted one of the most haunted hotels in the Adirondacks by Adirondack Life magazine for good reason. Disembodied singing and EVPs have been caught. Full-bodied apparitions have been seen. And there's even a ghost cat Saranac Lake is popular for various reasons, including camping, hiking, and boating on Lake Flower in the summer and cross-country skiing in the winter. It's also home to the annual Ice Palace. The first Ice Palace was constructed in 1898 and has been consistently built over the years, except during World War I, the Depression, and World War II. And it's exactly what it sounds like. A life size palace made of ice, complete with separate rooms and thrones for the king and queen. Although celebrities were once elected as the Winter Carnival's royalty, for several decades the honor has been bestowed on local residents who have contributed to the Saranac Lake community. But speaking of celebrities, Saranac Lake has been visited by the literary and scientific elite. Famous longtime visitors have included writers Robert Louis Stevenson, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Mark Twain, and Sylvia Plath. Albert Einstein also liked to sail his small boat on the waters of Lake Flower. But Robert Louis Stevenson and Sylvia Plath visited Saranac Lake for another reason. It was a popular spot for those in need of rest and relaxation due to respiratory illnesses. The fresh, clean Adirondack air was believed to be the best cure for things like tuberculosis, and it quickly became more popular than Colorado, as far as people believing that Saranac Lake had the best air. Robert Louis Stevenson arrived in 1887 to take advantage of one of Dr. Edward Livingston Trudeau's cure cottages. I'll get into more about Trudeau in a minute, but for now, Stevenson spent two full winters in Saranac Lake, likely trying to cure tuberculosis. Unfortunately, he chain-smoked to the point that the landlady of the cottage he was renting feared that he'd burn it down— and Dr. Trudeau gave him hell for it, saying that continuously smoking while taking in the clean air was pretty contradictory. Poet Sylvia Plath came to Saranac Lake in 1952 to visit Dick Norton, who was her boyfriend at the time, and he was also staying at the Trudeau Sanatorium. So Dr. Trudeau arrived in 1876 with his own respiratory issues and after a few months, when he felt that Saranac Lake had done him some good, he decided to stay. He opened his first cure cottage, nicknamed Little Red, in 1884. The Trudeau Sanatorium became highly sought after as the place for people suffering from tuberculosis to isolate themselves and recover. He was also one of the original supporters of the first Ice Palace, but I digress. You know how I like my historical facts. <laughs> One man who came to the Trudeau Sanatorium and believed the rejuvenating air of Saranac Lake helped him recover was architect William Scopes. He decided to stay permanently and, needing some money, he opened an engineering firm with a man named Maurice M. Festman. Scopes did pretty well for himself but he harbored a dream of one day opening a grand hotel in the center of town to take advantage of the thousands of tourists who came there. In 1925, he partnered with several other businessmen, including Morton Marshall, and they formed the Saranac Lake Hotel Corporation. Scopes and Marshall managed to raise $125,000 and purchased the land where the former Saranac Lake High School once stood. The three-story wooden high school building had burned down in a fire, but its foundation was still there. Their new hotel, which opened in 1927, was as grand as grand can be. Rising six stories, the brick facade was based on colonial revivalism, but the interior was filled with European marble and handcrafted wrought iron. The most stunning room, known as the Grand Salon, was modeled after the Davanzati Palace in Florence, Italy. Scopes blew his budget. In the end, he spent $750,000 on the hotel's construction. But the Grand Salon, now known as the Great Hall Bar, was worth every penny. According to HotelSaranac.com, the Great Hall Bar, quote, evokes the style of Gilded Age speakeasies with its elaborate wooden ceiling. Massive wooden beams hold it all together, and at each key point they meet at ornate corbels painted with scenes of local history and interest. There are rumors that the bar actually was a speakeasy during Prohibition, Although there isn't any documentation to prove it. Again, according to Hotelsaranac.com, there were at least seven moonshine stills in that area that serviced as far south as New York City. And since Saranac Lake is relatively close to the Canadian border, the area was a haven for rum runners and bootleggers. So it is possible that the hotel offered some illegal refreshment to its high-end guests. And my goodness, the hotel did have some high-end guests, or at least some pretty historical ones. The Franklin County League of Women Voters, the Adirondack Council of Boy Scouts of America, and the Northern New York Headquarters of Women's Organization for the National Prohibition Reform all met there regularly. Despite its popularity, the hotel was costly, and Scopes and Marshall struggled to keep it afloat. After ten years, their hotel corporation was forced to dissolve, and the hotel was taken over by Marshall's widow, Rita. The hotel changed hands numerous times throughout the decades, once even coming under the umbrella of Paul Smith's college in the 1960s. For the nearby Lake Placid Olympics in 1980, the hotel was booked solid five months in advance. But still, Saranac Lake wasn't exactly the booming town it once was. Recently, there was some concern that the hotel was going to have to close for good, but in 2013, it was purchased by the Riddell Company, which meant that in 2017, the Hotel Saranac became part of the Hilton Curio Collection. And the hotel was officially listed on the U.S. Register of Historic Places a year later. And they were the ones that replaced the Hot Sarah sign. Have you heard about the Hot Sarah? No. No? No. So, back in the 1940s, a massive lit sign was placed on the hotel roof. But due to age and electrical issues, half of the sign burned out and it wasn't fixed. So for many many years the Hotel Saranac was blazoned with the moniker Hot Sarah.
0: <laughs> well, I imagine it still pulled in people.
1: I guess occasionally the Hilton Curio, I mean the place is technically owned by Hilton, uh, I guess occasionally they um do something where the sign so that it still says Hot Sarah every once in a while.
0: Really that's awesome.
1: Yeah. Now, with all of this history in this tiny little town, you'd expect there to be some hauntings. Because Saranac Lake was home to the Trudeau Sanatorium from 1884 to 1954, it's pretty much a given that parts of the former property are haunted. Like his original Red Cottage, for example, which is one of the 64 remaining Cure Cottages still standing in the area. Apparently, a little boy is said to haunt Little Red. But it's actually the hotel that is said to be the most haunted spot in town. The only question is who or what actually haunts it. There have been a few paranormal groups who have tried to figure that out. One frequently spotted apparition is of a man in a black coat and top hat roaming the halls with what appears to be a distinct purpose. It's as if he is checking on something or someone. Now, there's speculation that this ghost is of Howard Littell, the one-time superintendent of the high school that sat on the property before the hotel was built. That was the wooden one that burnt down. Littell was reportedly beloved by the students and the staff, and he held the position of superintendent for almost 35 years. The thing is, is when the high school burned down, it was actually rebuilt on another property, and Littell continued as the superintendent. He also passed away in another state, so there's some question as to whether or not he really is the apparition in the top hat. Regardless, the man in the hat, has been spotted in numerous hallways and in the basement. But he's not the only apparition that is related to school. Others have claimed to catch sight of the apparition of Frances Poloni, and they see her near the ballroom on the second floor. Poloni taught at the hotel when it was owned by Paul Smith's College. A little girl is said to haunt the fourth floor, although who she is still remains a mystery. During the most recent renovations of the hotel, the Adirondack Park Paranormal Society completed a two-night investigation of the property. According to a Press Republican article on their experience, Damon Jacobs, Melissa Canto, and Susan Groff caught some strange evidence. Susan Groff was actually a former employee of the hotel who worked there for five years, and she had had her own personal experiences when she worked there. But during their investigation, construction crews were in the process of removing the furniture from all 98 rooms during the day, and the place was empty at night, not just of people but of all the furniture. While up on the third floor, two of the three team members clearly saw a shadow pass from one side of the hall to the other, and then the open hotel room door closest to the shadow closed. During the day, the work crew stopped to ask the paranormal team if they had been singing, which they hadn't, of course but the workmen swore that they had heard voices singing up on the sixth floor. Hearing voices on the sixth floor is apparently quite a common occurrence. Hotel employees have reportedly heard it themselves. When Susan Groff of APPS worked at the hotel, she apparently had some experiences with a ghost cat. I love ghost cats. We've talked about them before in various places. Heard up on the third floor, this ghost cat apparently scratches at doors. It has also been known to brush up against guests' legs. They actually feel the sensation of something touching them, but when they look down, there's nothing there. Now, there was a longtime resident named Emily Balsam who passed away in the hotel in 1983, and she had a beloved cat. Many people think that this ghost cat was hers. According to SaranacLake.com, guests who stay in Emily's former room frequently call down to the front desk to say that their stuff has been knocked over or moved, or that the bed doesn't really look made. Some hotel staff are, apparently, reluctant to go up to the room because they know that there's no explanation for the moved objects, or the round impression on the bed other than the ghost cat. I found another account at saranaclake.com that I thought was pretty interesting. So a bridal consultant was showing clients the ballroom space on the second floor for their upcoming wedding. The bride's mother asked to see the kitchen. And as the group entered the special events kitchen, they walked in on a woman kneading dough at one of the counters. The bridal consultant didn't recognize the woman, but she turned to say something to the bride's mother. When she faced the center table again, the woman and the dough had both disappeared. So yeah, the Hotel Saranac definitely sounds haunted and why wouldn't it be? For almost a hundred years, people have been coming to Saranac Lake to enjoy the scenery, to get into nature, and to breathe that clean, fresh air. There are bound to be some guests who were so content there that they just didn't want to leave. You know what's strange is the hundreds of times that we've driven by the Hotel Saranac, I've never actually been inside of it.
0: No. And when we were there just a couple of weeks ago, well, it was actually about a month or so ago, I wanted to stop and go take a look at it. But there was so much traffic and so little parking spots that we didn't bother.
1: Yeah. That bar sounds great, though. I'd like to at least go and see the bar. Yeah. Yeah. And the hot Sarah sign. (laughs) Yeah, I like that. Hey, did you know, a polyglot is a person who speaks three or more languages proficiently. Some people with this talent are ones you'd expect, like brilliant inventor Nikola Tesla, who spoke eight, or royalty like Prince William, who speaks seven. But there are some actors who are also polyglots, like Tom Hiddleston of Loki fame, who speaks five, and Natalie Portman, who speaks six. But the martial artist and actor Jackie Chan takes the lead at eight, including Cantonese, Mandarin, Japanese, Korean, Spanish, German, English, and American Sign Language. Who'd thunk it? So you said you were going to be talking about a mystery, correct? Yes. Ooh, I love a good mystery. Okay, I can't wait to hear it.
0: Well, then you're all going to like this one. With all of today's choices in TV programming, from regular network shows to countless streaming services, this scenario might be a little hard to imagine, but let's try. Let's go back to the 1970s when there were fewer TV viewing options, just a handful of network channels and very few premium ones like HBO. Local access channels were still pretty popular, as well as channels like PBS. But back then, you had to wait until 5 p.m. for the evening news to come on TV, and then 8 or 9 o'clock for your favorite program to air. This evening, you're in your kitchen, gathering ingredients for dinner after a long day. From the counter, you have a clear view of the living room television, which you've turned on to the evening news. As you start preparing dinner, you let the newscaster's voice be your background noise. First, the daily headlines, then the weather, and then something weird happens. As you drop your hamburger into the hot skillet, you catch the TV screen out of the corner of your eye. The nightly newscaster's face is starting to fade as the screen goes all wavy. Then, the entire screen is replaced by static. Before you can wonder what the heck is going on, A strange voice emits from your television set, claiming to be an alien from another world. Your browning hamburger forgotten, you wander into the living room and sit down on your couch, entranced by the words now filling the screen as the spacey, vibrating voice reads them aloud. The voice is claiming to be from another world, and it has taken over your television. Maybe you wonder to yourself if it's only happening to the TV in your house. You glance across the street and consider calling a neighbor, but something about the broadcast, which is still going, keeps you rooted in your seat. And then, just as suddenly as it began, it ends. Confused and a little freaked out, you stand up from the couch and return to the kitchen, to the hamburger that is steadily sizzling, and to the newscaster's voice, which has refilled the screen and is carrying on as if nothing ever happened. Sounds a little funny, doesn't it? Well, that's exactly what happened to 500,000 households on Saturday, November 26, 1977, in southern England. And to this day, no one knows who was behind it. Now, it was just a regular night and just a regular day-by-day evening news bulletin. As newscaster Andrew Gardner broadcasted live on southern television, just like he always did, Southern Television had three transmitters in that area at the time, in Dover, Bluebell Hill, and Hannington, and as I said, they reached 500,000 homes. At about 5.10 p.m., the TV picture of Gardner wobbled a little, then it got a little wavy. It did right itself, but only for a few seconds before the wavy pattern returned. The studio disappeared entirely from the screen, And all these people watched as their screens turned blue, with darker blue lines crossing it horizontally. A voice began to speak. It's a little difficult to describe what the voice sounded like. It's robotic, but it also vibrates, as though it's coming from very far away or it's being distorted in some kind of way. Today, we could mimic it pretty perfectly by simply pushing a button on a voice-changing app or like on our podcasting equipment that we're talking on right now. In today's world, we've heard this kind of distortion done a million times. But in 1977, well, it had to have sounded to people like it came from outer space. The voice, which ironically had a British accent, claimed to be from outer space. The male voice said that he was a representative of the Ashtar Galactic Command, and he called himself Vrilon. He spoke for six minutes. As he spoke, his words scrolled across the screen. This is the voice of Vrilon, a representative of the Ashtar Galactic Command, speaking to you. For many years you have seen us as lights in the sky. We speak to you now in peace and wisdom, as we have done to your brothers and sisters all over this, your planet Earth. We come to warn you of the destiny of your race and your world so that you may communicate to your fellow beings the course you must take to avoid the disaster which threatens your world, and the beings on the worlds around you. This is in order that you may share in great awakening as the planet passes into the new age of Aquarius. The new age of Aquarius could be a time of great peace and evolution for your race, but only if your rulers are made aware of the evil forces that can overshadow their judgments. Be still now and listen, for your chance may not come again. All your weapons of evil must be removed. The time for conflict is now past, and the race of which you are part of may proceed to the higher stages of its evolution if you show yourselves worthy to do this. You have but a short time to learn to live together in peace and goodwill. Small groups all over the planet are learning this and exist to pass on the light of the dawning new age to you all. You are free to accept or reject their teachings, but only those who learn to live in peace will pass to the higher realms of spiritual evolution. Hear now the voice of Rilon, a representative of the Ashtar Galactic Command speaking to you. Be aware also that there are many false prophets and guides operating in your world, They will suck your energy from you. The energy you call money will put it to evil ends and give you worthless dross in return. Your inner divine self will protect you from this. You must learn to be sensitive to the voice within that can tell you what is truth and what is confusion, chaos, and untruth. Learn to listen to the voice of truth, which is within you, and you will lead yourselves into the path of evolution. This is our message to our dear friends. We have watched you growing for many years, as you too have watched our lights in your skies. You know now that we are here, and that there are more beings on and around your earth than the scientists admit. We are deeply concerned about you and your path towards the light, and we will do what we can to help you. Have no fear. Seek only to know yourselves and live in harmony with the ways of your planet Earth. We of the Ashtar Galactic Command thank you for your attention. We are now leaving the plane of your existence. May you be blessed by the supreme love and truth of the cosmos.
1: That's a lot for one alien to say over the airwaves. (laughs) That is a lot. Six minutes you said he talked for.
0: Yeah, it's a long time. Wow. So with this message delivered, Vrillon... Simply ended his transmission. The blue wavy screen disappeared and the Southern Television Studio came back up, with Andrew Gardner still sitting in his chair behind his broadcast desk. Gardner said, quote, We understand that viewers in some parts of the region are receiving a breakthrough in sound. We're sorry about this and are doing our best to rectify the fault. End quote. And with that, the newscast continued. <laughs>
1: Like nothing had really happened.
0: Now, as you can imagine, this freaked a bunch of people out.
1: I can just picture, like, a little old lady in her living room, and she's got, like, her hat on and her little purse in her hand, and she's, like, on the phone. (laughs) Millie, did you just watch the television? (laughs) Do you think we're being invaded? Should we call the police? (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine what was going through people's
1: minds. It had to be pretty scary for a lot of people.
0: And I remember hearing about this. I didn't see it firsthand, of course, but I do remember hearing all the news about this. Hmm. Local reports said that people numbering in the thousands were concerned for their safety. On the flip side, I'm also sure that there were a handful of people who just shook their heads and laughed it off. Now, I'm pretty sure that something like that probably wouldn't happen today since everyone already has access to places like TikTok where they can share their messages with the world right away. But back then, it was a pretty ballsy way to scare people. Now, the media was quick to report that the fine for hacking broadcast was £200 or $363. Within a few days, Southern Television announced that they knew what had happened but didn't want to release the details to the public because then someone else might try to do it. The initial theory was that someone had hacked into a transmitter on the Isle of Wight since it was pretty remote. But here's what actually happened. Someone had managed to interrupt the regular broadcast signal at the Hennington transmitter, except no one knew who they were. And to this day, no one knows who they were. Despite wanting to keep it quiet, the news got out. Both British and American news outlets ran the story, but no one has ever came forward to take credit for it, which you think by now someone would have. It seemed to be a one-time isolated thing. And for what purpose, really? Right. Did this Verlion character truly believe the message he shared? that everyone needed to live in peace and stop being so materialistic? Because when you boil it all down, that's really all he said. Or was it just some prankster who wrote down a bunch of stuff that he thought sounded spacey and alien-like, and he didn't really have an agenda, other than seeing if he could actually get away with it? Regardless, it did turn out to be a one-time thing, despite proclaiming that the message was being shared all over the world, It really wasn't, unless you want to count all the present-day uploads to YouTube of the broadcast. It's kind of ironic that today in 2024, Verlan's message can actually be shared all over the world. It took 40 years, but hey, he got there.
1: (laughs) Hooray for YouTube.
0: (laughs) I know. The man who called himself Verlan may not have taken to the airwaves again, nor anyone else from the Ashtar Galactic Command. But on November 22nd, 1987, another hacker did. This time, it was in the U.S., and some of you might even remember this. And you know what's weird? The Verlon broadcast and this next broadcast were almost exactly 10 years apart. They were just off by four days. Now, I wonder if that's just a coincidence. Anyway... For those of you who can recall the 1980s, there was a popular fictional character out of Britain called Max Headroom. He was supposed to be an artificially intelligent, computer-generated character, but he was really played by actor Matt Frewer in prosthetic makeup. The gist of the show was that Max Headroom's brain was digitally uploaded to a network after he was killed by some unscrupulous TV executives. During the show... Headroom would interrupt fictional broadcasts to offer snarky comments.
1: You know, I remember watching it on MTV, I think, in the 80s. And I don't remember really liking the show all that much, but my friends thought it was hilarious. I mean, I remember what he looked like, but I don't really remember anything specific about the show.
0: Yeah, I remember seeing him, but I didn't think anything special of it. Yeah. It it really didn't capture my attention. On November 22, 1987, Channel 9 in Chicago was airing their 9 o'clock news. Sportscaster Dan Roan was in the middle of his usual segment. This night, he was covering highlights of a Chicago Bears-Detroit Lions game. It was around 9.14 p.m. Just like in England 10 years before, people who were watching the news suddenly saw the news studio on their TV screens disappear Except the picture didn't go all wavy first. It just went totally black. Fifteen seconds later, Max Headroom appeared. I'm sure that a lot of people assumed the whole thing was planned. I mean, that's what the character was known for. But this wasn't the real Max Headroom. This guy was wearing a rubber mask that just looked like Max Headroom. He also had black sunglasses on. And he didn't say anything. He just bobbed his head around in a creepy way in front of a rotating black-and-white striped background while a buzzing noise emanated from people's TVs. Channel 9's technicians scrambled to stop the hacker signal, and they were able to reestablish Dan Roan and their own broadcast in about 30 seconds. I'm sure it felt like a very long 30 seconds. I bet. Once he was back on the air, a confused Dan Roan said, quote, Well, if you're wondering what's happened, so am I. Initially, the folks at Channel 9 assumed that someone had scrambled their signal and had somehow filmed themselves live inside their own building. They didn't find anyone, and it turned out that it was actually pre-recorded and patched in from a separate location. Unlike the Vrillon broadcast, this was not a one-off. Two hours later on Channel 11 at 11.15 p.m., people's TV screens went completely black during an episode of Doctor Who. Now, Channel 11 was a PBS channel. And in case you're wondering, the Doctor Who episode was a rerun of 1977's The Horror of Fang Rock, which happens to be another weird coincidence because the Doctor Who episode first aired the same year as the Vrillain broadcast.
1: Hmm. Interesting.
0: That it is. When the masked Max Headroom character appeared, he bobbed his head just like before. Only this time, he had stuff to say. First, in a distorted voice, he said, he's a freaking nerd. (laughs) Yep. Now, whether he was referring to Doctor Who or someone else, it wasn't quite clear.
1: Can you imagine hacking into a Doctor Who episode and being like, he's such a nerd.
0: But he wasn't. Doctor Who was so cool. I know. one of my favorite programs. (laughs) After giggling, the broadcast continued for 90 seconds. Within that minute and a half, he called out sportscaster Chuck Swirsky as a freaking liberal. And then he held up a can of Pepsi while declaring Coke's slogan, Catch the Wave. All of this was quite weird for sure, but pretty tame compared to what came next. First, the Max Headroom impersonator flipped off the camera. He muttered stuff like, I spilled my beer. Then he sang lyrics from the Temptations song, I Know I'm Losing You. He hummed for a little bit also. Then he announced, I just made a giant masterpiece for the greatest world newspaper nerds. <laughs> The greatest world newspaper was the corporation that owned Channel 9, the broadcast that he had interrupted earlier that night. He also declared, My brother is wearing the other one, as he removed a dirty white glove from his hand, reminiscent of Michael Jackson's single white glove. Then the shot changed, and in the next scene, viewers could see the side of a man bent over exposing his buttocks.
1: (laughs) His buttocks.
0: (laughs) I know.
1: (laughs) Do you mean buttocks? His butt? That's what I meant. Buttocks.
0: (laughs) He then pulled off his mask, but his face was cut off by the frame of the shot. Then a woman steps into frame, and you can only see part of her arm and her hip. She only has one line. Bend over, bitch.
1: Oh, my goodness. (laughs)
0: Then she starts slapping the man's butt with a flyswatter.
1: Oh, that's a lot for people watching Doctor Who.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean,
1: not that I'm making any judgments of people who watch Doctor Who.
0: And then it just ends. Well, to be more accurate, Channel 11 was able to cut the audio and the video, although the transmission itself didn't end for another few seconds. Now, as you can imagine the TV station was in an uproar, especially when they realized that one of the TV station transmitters had been completely unintended the entire time. There weren't any engineers at the transmitter tower. Despite there being relatively easy access to the transmitter tower, whoever had commandeered the station had to have had some pretty good tech skills. Engineers at WTTW believed the hacker had to be either a broadcast engineer themselves or someone with similar knowledge, like a satellite engineer or a ham radio operator. Now, they must have gone up on a Chicago-area rooftop and used some pretty powerful equipment to intercept the signal between the transmitter and the studio. The irony of the whole thing is that, because there wasn't anyone at the transmitter tower, the only taped copies of the hijack were made by people who just happened to be recording the Doctor Who episode on their VCRs. An investigation was conducted, probably using one of those VCR tapes as evidence, and Federal Communication Commission officers were able to determine that the video was most likely shot in a warehouse, which warehouse, though, was never determined. They did determine that hacking the signal was easier than they initially thought. Whoever did it, probably just put a dish antenna on a rooftop and played around with it until they had the position just right. The FCC was quick to go public, with the reminder that interfering with a television broadcast signal could result in a $100,000 fine and or a year of jail time. Whereas the Vrillon broadcast at least seemed to have a message, the Max Headroom one really doesn't have a message at all. unless. It's so specific to one person that he or she would get it. So, pretty much like an inside joke. Right. A lot of people wondered what the point was. Why bother interrupting a rerun of Doctor Who to put on this display that really didn't seem to say much? Was it supposed to be art? Was it supposed to be funny? Or was it meant to be ironic? Eh, I don't know. But no matter. What the point was, news outlets all over the country replayed it over and over, giving the hacker more than 15 minutes of fame. Like the Vrillon broadcast, the Max Headroom imposter was never caught. Huh. But I can guarantee there were people out there amongst their friends all laughing and joking about how they pulled it off.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're very right that today there's there's no reason to even do anything like that. No. You know, with our TikToks and our all our other, you know, what's the word I'm thinking of? um, Platforms. Well,
0: like, you know, you, know, you have YouTube streaming, you have, you have Prime, you have Discovery, you have all those. So, and most of it's, you're not watching much live these days. I imagine some people still do, but I rarely ever watch live TV.
1: Right. So I think it really is like a product of, of its time, you know? Right. But it's interesting. I do remember my friends, older brothers and sisters, talking about the Max Headroom hacking. I mean, I didn't see it. Yeah, I but remember I, it. Yeah, I do remember everybody talking about it.
0: But like I said before, he just never resonated with me. I, I, I just didn't see the whole thing. Anything funny about Max Headroom?
1: Mm-hmm. And I think it gained a lot more popularity after that happened because then everybody was watching to see if, you know.
0: I'm thinking perhaps it was more of a maybe college kind of deal, you know, where you get around before going out that night and everything. And people like used to put on Saturday Night Live and everything and watch that before going out or.
1: Mm-hmm. you know, Yeah. Huh.
0: But who knows? Maybe some of you saw it back then.
1: Yeah. Let us know if you. uh. If,
0: if you're they... old like us. <laughs>
1: Well, they may definitely know about the Max Headroom one, but I doubt they know about the Verlan one. But maybe they do. I don't know.
0: You never know. We have listeners all over the world. This is true. Hey, if you heard it, drop us a note on Facebook or our website,
1: or if your parents are, you know, yeah, let us know.
0: Well, with that said,
1: as always, if you'd like to know more about our topics, you can check our show notes in our sources um, to read more about both. Well, topics
0: that's right um uh, i think that pretty much wraps up this episode then join us next week for an all new episode of where Our minds wander
1: see you soon